Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we're talking about Mission Impossible Fallout, which is the sixth installment in the franchise. It stars Tom Cruise as the super spy Ethan Hunt, and his job is to retrieve three nuclear bombs from an anti-religious terrorist organization. And kind of beyond that, the plot is way too ludicrously complicated to explain here, but we will be discussing spoilers. We also were not really expecting to be talking about this movie, or indeed watching it, but the hype level was so unexpectedly high that we were like, we have to watch this movie. Um, Every film critic has been raving about it. The phrase, best action movie since Fury Road, has been bandied around. I would not say that it is on that level because it is artistically vacuous. However, very fun movie. Excellent action scenes starring a famously weird man. Yes, I think I liked this more than you, which is always interesting when it comes to popcorn movies, because I think... I mean, I watch, like, a lot more action movies than you, so I'm probably more of a snob. (laughs) Yeah, but in general, I'm more of a snob than you are. Yes. So... I mean, don't get me wrong, this movie was fun as hell, and I was, like, physically gripping onto my friend's arm for a good third of it, so kudos to director Chris McQuarrie. I'd like to start, however, by just posing a simple question that I also asked on Twitter, and I think it is really the root of the appeal of this movie, which is, how is Tom Cruise alive? What is he doing? How how is he not dead? What the fuck? Like... He actively is trying to die making these movies. It is insane. It's just preposterous. The whole time I was watching this, I was just like, what are you have a death wish? And he's just out of his mind. Yeah, he's probably strengthening his bones with the marrow of the youths. (laughs) Yes, I I expect so. Um, But the thing is, like, Tom Cruise, as you said, is just like a famous lunatic and a bad man. Like he's a high-ranking member of an evil cult that does nefarious things. He apparently now spends most of his time either in London when he's shooting movies, which often are shot in London, or in Clearwater, Florida, which is Scientology headquarters. So that's charming. And yet you watch this movie and he just is doing everything to such an extreme degree that you sort of just have to be like, you know, I applaud you. Like, you have committed so hard to this that it's just sort of awe-inspiring. There is a sequence. It's sort of, it's sort of fascinating because, like, the, the Mission Impossible franchise is really persistent, but I don't think anyone really has high expectations. And also, while I have only seen, like, a couple of these movies and have no memory of, like, the actual characterization, I'm pretty sure that Ethan Hunt's characterization is whatever anyone decides it should be in that film. I don't think he's like James Bond where he has consistent character traits or an arc. <laughs> no. he. I mean, this movie exists to deliver action sequences. It has no ideas. It has no themes. And I think you had more of a problem with that than I did. Which is interesting, because normally I would be like, I want a film to have concepts. (laughs) And in this, I was just like, you know what? I care in no way about this. Because it was so unbelievably well executed until maybe the last quarter, which we can talk about a little bit more later, that it completely did not matter to me 
that the plot was sort of not, I mean, it was nonsense. And I think that the people making it were also keenly aware. Oh, for sure. And that the, (laughs) yeah. And that the point of the movie is just to watch these action sequences, but they are so insanely well executed. And Tom Cruise, as everyone has been saying ad nauseum, does all of his own stunts. And you can really tell watching that that's the case. Like, a lot of other action movies do a very good job of masking the fact that the people who are starring in them aren't doing everything. And there's obviously no problem with that. Like, I in no way expect actors to do all of the insane shit that Tom Cruise does because I don't want them to break their ankles filming movies, which he did making this film, right? Um, Or have worse things happen to them, which seems likely to occur at some point if he continues on in this fashion. Um, But it does add a certain level of adrenaline when you're watching that it's so obvious that the person acting in the film is the person who did all the stuff. And there's a sequence around a third of the way through that I actually think is the best sequence of the movie, even though it's not the most out there, where he's just riding a motorcycle through incredibly oh my fast God, traffic. It's so good. <laughs> and obviously this is all like incredibly choreographed, right? But he could very easily have been seriously hurt doing that. And the skill it must have taken to execute this from him and then from everybody else making the movie is just mind-boggling to think about. And I saw this film on like a Tuesday night screening at 8.30 in like a local Brooklyn movie theater, right? And it was not very full. This movie is doing pretty well, but like this is not a time or a place where it's going to be packed. There were maybe 20 people there. And people just started clapping because... Um, not like in an up, like a uproarious way, but just in a sort of like incredulous, slow fashion, because we were all just couldn't believe what we had seen, and that is the kind of thing about this movie that I found so impressive, but also that just made me feel so joyous watching it like I literally had a smile on my face for basically that was definitely the first how I was experiencing it as well I was like bursting out into impromptu laughter especially like I also loved that motorcycle chase sequence and what I was thinking while watching it is because obviously all of the action scenes are just so kind of cranked up to 11 and they're very extreme but they're still kind of within the realm of a tonally realistic movie but in that one, I was just like, the fact that he spent the whole chase scene basically riding a motorcycle the wrong way up a crowded street in the middle of Paris. I was thinking, I think this is in the world of Inception. And he is <laughs> he is in someone's brain. Because the way that the scene, and because it was in Paris, obviously, was interacting with itself. I was just like, this is definitely just taking place in Inception. And Ethan Hunt is either an extractor or he is one of the little, like, brain people that like protects people's brains <laughs> but he's protecting earth's brain and that's because because it's like no one surrounding him is really behaving naturally but it's in a way that feels natural to the film because obviously that's how it works because it's like you know a dance sequence made of cars yes that's a great way to describe it and i think that what the people making this film intuitively grasp and are incredibly good at then conveying is just like the physics of bodies and objects 
in scenes like this. Like, yes. there is a genius... Oh, the point with the helicopter at the end yes. is fucking killing me. Because it's like, they have this huge chase sequence with these two helicopters where my friend was like, my God, he's going to ram him with a helicopter. I was like, no fucking duh, he's going to ram him with a helicopter. That is not the exciting bit. We know something must happen after that because that's like the first course of the opulent meal. And lo and behold, they do crash. But it's like the two helicopters are kind of stuck vertically down a crevasse at the top of this mountain. And they wound up with like Henry Cavill and Tom Cruise having this fist fight on top of the edge of a cliff while the helicopter is hanging off a wire. And this wire is present through the whole fight scene, like Chekhov's helicopter wire. You're like, I know they're going to wind up on that wire at some point. And it's still great when it happens because it's just like the way they do it has such imagination and also all of the kind of kinetic moving parts they must have an incredibly good sort of um, internal visualisation of what's going on. See, interestingly, the cliff sequence was the only action sequence in the movie that I didn't particularly like. And it was the only action sequence in the movie where people in my theater were laughing, as opposed to making sounds of just like, what the fuck? Um, And I think that that is because, even though it definitely was also well executed, all of the other action sequences leading up to that point though obviously implausible on a, like, actual grounds of realism level. Like, of course, none of the stuff in this movie is ever going to, like, happen. (laughs) That one is so fully impossible. Ha ha ha. Like, it was sort of beyond what the rest of the movie was doing. They're literally hanging off a hook on a cliff. And then, like, it starts to fall a little bit in a way that, like, you're familiar with from other movies like it's kind of a it's a tropey thing and it pushes Ethan Hunt into this realm of like you know like Jesus type figure particularly because he's fighting to reach the detonator of a nuclear bomb to sort of stop it from going off which of course he does at the last second because the movie can't end with like the world being destroyed by nuclear bombs spoiler alert like that's not how it concludes um and one of the things that i thought was so incredible about the first however you know like two three quarters of the movie was that even though all of the action sequences were so insane that they sort of abided by certain rules of i don't want to say plausibility because again they're not really plausible but like you could conceive of them happening on some level. And then you get to the end and I was like, I don't really know about this. And it's like, they have 15 minutes of this like ticking clock until the bomb explodes. And it the sequence lasts for like a half an hour. <laughs> and I was like, this is not 15 minutes. Like this has gone on for way too long. And the movie gets to feel a little long by that point. Like it's two and a half hours long and it definitely only needed to be two hours. Um, and like his wife has shown up and it just becomes a little bit much. But up until that point, I was so in the movie that I didn't even care about all the, like, plot nonsense of, of, like, the bomb stuff. I genuinely was like, this has not been overhyped for me in any way. And people were saying, like you said, like, the best action movie since Fury Road, which is, like, an extreme statement. So... I would definitely say that every Fast and Furious movie that came out in those intervening years is also incredible. And also, like... I think, like you were saying, kind of about the um, the fact that you were like less bothered about it being like the plot being absolute nonsense. I wouldn't say I was bothered by it, but what I was kind of entertained by is the fact that 
the way they kind of articulated the story was so wildly overcomplicated. Like every time they explained something, I was just like almost confused. Like I could figure out what was going on, but I was like, why the fuck is this so complicated? Because it's in this weird thing where tonally it's between the Jason Bourne movies, which are, you know, the good ones are like gritty and quite serious, but the action sequences are also really awe-inspiring. And the total absurdity of the later Fast and Furious movies, which are very dear to my heart, um, I actually rewatched Fast 7 last night and it's a fucking masterpiece. It's the one where they drive a car between the top of three skysca- skyscrapers in uh, Abu Dhabi, <laughs> which is incredible. Uh, <laughs> just a masterpiece. Um, it was like very strange to watch this movie that like in some ways takes itself really seriously because Tom Cruise always intrinsically is taking himself very seriously in this movie is very much like an extension of his entire spirit you know because like Christopher (laughs) McQuarrie has collaborated with him on a bunch of movies and they clearly have like this very close relationship where they understand what's up and obviously Tom Cruise simultaneously has a lot of creative control but is known for being like really respectful towards directors which is part of the reason why he's still working so incredibly like consistently despite having this like miasma of horror around his personal life but um uh yeah it was just like very strange to see this kind of clash between them having these moments of quite shallow sincerity and also like really hardcore like serious spy stuff and then I'd just be like this is pure nonsense and I think the person who was like doing that best in the movie was like the new female lead the um the white widow character because she was just so fun in a kind of Bond villain way, but not over the top. Um, I just looked her up. It's the character played by Vanessa Kirby, who is actually going to be in the next Fast and Furious movie, so I'm hyped for that. But um, she was very fun. Unlike, I think, um, Rebecca Ferguson, who just like doesn't really have character traits. Yes. I mean, her job is to like drive around looking ominous, right? Like they don't really give her much to do. I mean, Except. she was the she was in the last yes. Mission Impossible movie, which is the only Mission Impossible movie I actually remember having watched, which is quite fun. But I think she was more fun in that because she was sort of a Black Widow character. Yeah, I've seen uh, Ghost Protocol, which is the one before that. Oh, wait, maybe that's the one I saw. And she's she's <laughs> not in that. That's oh, okay. the one with Jeremy Renner. Okay. All right. That Brad Bird directed that was his first and I still think only uh, live action movie. And it was so it was a big deal for that reason at the time. And it's Brad Bird made Tomorrowland and it fucking sucked. Oh, yes. So it was his first then. And it's great. I don't remember it very well, but I remember thinking it was great at the time. And then I saw the third one, which is the one with Michelle Monaghan, who reappears in this movie on a plane without sound at the time. (laughs) That sounds like really the quintessential, uh, like kind of Tom Cruise action movie experiences on a plane. Yes. With, as I said, no sound, so no dialogue. And I do not recall it very well for that reason. I don't remember Ghost Protocol very well either. Although, as I said, I remember thinking it was really good. But I think the sort of tonal thing you're talking about, based on my vague memory of that, and also just like what I've been reading uh, of people talking about this one, is basically what the franchise is. Like, they have this sort of absurd thing, like the fact that they can put masks on and become other people, which is which is extremely great. silly. I love every time they do that. And if anything, I wish they'd done it more. But it also does mean that I don't trust anyone in the movie because I'm like, literally every single person in every scene could be fake. <laughs> right. Um, 
And all the like many, many reversals of people being good or bad, or maybe they're good again, or maybe they're bad again, is pretty much what happens in all of them. I feel like Jeremy Renner in the last one had a few um, reversals of that type, although I believe he wound up being a good guy, because he was supposed to take over for Tom Cruise as the lead of these movies, and then Tom Cruise was like, actually... This is not acceptable to me. And then while they were making it, they like had to rewrite the script to change that from happening. I mean, he was also like meant to take over the Bourne franchise, exactly. which is quite frankly idiotic. Yes, and that also didn't happen. So this has happened to Jeremy Renner twice, which is slightly entertaining. Um, but all of that stuff is like quite silly, but they just do it every time because it's just what they do. And it's just sort of part and parcel of the experience of these films and I think that's fine because again they basically just need to come up with stuff to have happen in between the action scenes right? I loved how the overall conception of their kind of villain thing could literally have been from I think any action movie from any action franchise in the past 25 years it's like, oh no, there's three nukes and you've got to retrieve them or else something will get bombed. Okay. Well, I was wondering... <laughs> Not a criticism, but I was like, lol. <laughs> I was wondering when it was written and whether it was post, like, Trump. Because actually, like, the nuke thing has not been as much the thing recently. Like, it is in the first Captain America movie, but that's because that was like set in world war Two. i mean were any of the like were the two most recent mission impossible movies involving some kind of surveillance system because there's been like 10 action movies in the past few years that are about essentially prism right i don't know about the mission impossible movies but obviously like batman marvel like all the there's yeah. a lot of that in there, um, which makes sense. Because and like that's... Fast and Furious and Triple X both did that. But amusingly, the seventh Fast and Furious movie I just watched, like it's like, okay, well, we've got the surveillance system. Let's hand it over to the US government. Whereas Vin Diesel in Triple X, which came out like two years later, he's like, we've got to make sure the US government doesn't get this surveillance system. <laughs> well, right. Like you think about um, The Dark Knight where they're just using it to like spy on everyone and it's fine. Versus... There's like no moral consistency whatsoever. <laughs> no. Versus um, Winter Soldier where, well, it's sort of this, a similar thing, right? Where they've got like the algorithm. Haha. <laughs> and it's like deciding whether people are good or bad based on, you know, all the information that exists about them. And then they're just going to like kill a sixth of the population. Um, and so all these movies, even if they're not particularly deep, and, like, this movie is extremely not deep on any level, are always sort of reflecting on some level large concerns in current events like that. I mean, I think it's very in character for Tom Cruise to not want to make any kind of explicit statement. Like, there was this really entertaining sort of... um viral interview quote that was going around last week like if you're into film quote twitter you've probably seen it and it's an interview question where someone's basically like oh top cruise what's your favorite movie and he gives this extremely equivocal answer um which is like a paragraph long and he's like oh i love all movies i just like to see movies you know they're enjoyable films are great and um, someone was sharing this like oh i don't think tom cruise has seen a movie this is hilarious and it became a sort of meme where a bunch of people who like basically i don't think 
know much about Tom Cruise, which is fair, because who does, apart from the Scientology thing. But they were like, oh, it's really funny that, like, Tom Cruise doesn't watch movies. And the actual reality is that Tom Cruise is famous for, like, obsessively watching, like, every movie, including really obscure stuff and having very strong opinions. But he also doesn't want to share any of those opinions publicly, because he doesn't want to ever say anything A, controversial, or B, anything personalized like he's so incredibly neutral that the only thing he'll ever say is like oh i really love hard work that's it he's like oh hard work's really good i love to work hard and i really appreciate it when people work hard and it's like it's fucking like vacant nothingness and you know there's like shit going on behind there and that's kind of like these movies because it's like basically his only kind of emotional arc like ethan hunt is like the idea where he's like oh he you know, he saves his friend instead of saving the world at the beginning. And that kind of kicks off the whole problem because then the bombs get picked up by the enemies. And then, like, Alec Baldwin shows up and is like, oh, well, you know, I value you as an asset because you are the person who will sacrifice something for your friend. But then that also motivates you to be a good person and save everyone else. And then at the end, like, his kind of emotional issue is that his existence has put his ex-wife in danger because she's been taken as a hostage because in a classic wife slash ex-wife role. And that's like his only emotional outlet. Everything else is just like, I've got to save the world. And he is literally just like this absolutely kind of empty stock character. But unlike a kind of a cheap movie with an empty stock character, it still really works because like all of the action stuff is so compelling and you completely believe him. But he is still this like, vacant character who just has no further kind of complexity to him and all of his emotional stuff is like the world's most basic gotta save my wife and I feel guilty because I have to save the world all the time thing yes I mean he's a completely just neutral entity and to be clear about the nuke stuff like clearly this movie is not making any kind of political comment on nuclear weapons or like Trump (laughs) in any way but it's interesting to me that that's the thing that is the threat, right? Whereas, like, I don't think three years ago anyone except, like, extremely paranoid people was, like, lying awake worrying about nuclear weapons, right? Like, I certainly was not. And now that's definitely something that people are like, oh, God. Um, But they do definitely get used as a sort of neutral MacGuffin in, like, a fuckload of action movies because everyone knows what a nuke is, but it's, like, it doesn't really have as much emotional resonance as it does now. Yeah. But what's interesting about Tom Cruise is that, like, he's actually a great actor and has just sort of devolved into this, like, neutral action hero. Because it's not just this. Like, he, all he does is make action movies now, basically. And most of them get panned. Because the last time I saw him in a role where, I mean, he, in Edge of Tomorrow, right? That's the last movie he did where his character actually had characterization beyond the sort of Tom Cruise personality. Like, obviously I didn't see The Mummy, but The Mummy was, like, critically panned and also, like, fucking bland as hell. But Edge of Tomorrow, he's, like, great. And it's because he's playing this, like, character that starts off as really cowardly and venal and an asshole. And it's funny, because he is, he can be funny. Yes. (laughs) Whereas in this, he is just being kind of the absolute peak of Tom Cruise playing this type of character. Well, if you think about his stuff in like the 90s, I haven't seen a couple, I haven't seen Top Gun and I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut, which are the two like cute, or uh, Jerry Maguire. So those are like the three big Tom Cruise things I have not seen. But I have seen Born on the Fourth of July, which he got nominated for an Oscar for. 
I believe, uh, playing um, a disabled Vietnam vet. And it's a memoir. It's an Oliver Stone movie. And I've seen Magnolia, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, which she also got nominated for an Oscar for and should definitely have won. And I think Magnolia was kind of the last thing he did that was like really weird and out there. And he's playing this guy. This movie is... Magnolia is very flawed and kind of strange, but in this particular respect was very ahead of its time because he is playing this basically like... uh inspirational speaker who talks to men about how they can become pickup artists and get laid. And his, he come he has this like weird little like ponytail situation and he wears like a leather vest and he comes out on this stage at the beginning of the movie to this crowd of like cheering men. And his first line in the film is he like shouts to them, respect the cock. That is the opening of Tom Cruise and Magnolia. It is amazing. It is so incredible. And then he, like, it turns out that he's got, like, his father is dying in this movie and he's got all of these, like, issues with his dad, of course, to wind up being that person. And there's this scene where this female journalist interviews him that is, like, unreal, as you would expect. But, like, rarely have I seen a man, like, a male character who was so obviously painfully insecure on screen. Like it's an incredible depiction of that type of person and very reflective of like the internet today, I would say, while being pre sort of the internet of today. And it's the sort of thing like to imagine the Tom Cruise of today doing anything like that is so completely impossible that it's it's laughable. And well, it's like he's transitioned from like, the point in, like, the 80s and 90s where he was doing this, like, really quite diverse range of roles and was also quite respected as, like, a serious actor. It's not like he's lost respect in the same way that Johnny Depp has now, like, performance-wise. Yeah. But it's kind of like he's switched over from being, like, oh, I'm an actor and I'm going to do these, like, emotionally um, invasive roles where, like, there's a lot of character complexity. And he's, like, completely switched that entire outlook purely towards his body. Yes. Yeah. But also, it like ties into his completely obsessive control of his image because like everything he's playing, although he's not, I don't think he's exclusively playing heroes. I think there might be a couple where he's like maybe a bit more anti-heroic, like in the past few years. But it's never anything controversial, and it's always like really controlled, and nothing about it is weird. But obviously, everyone is like so completely aware that he is like the weirdest man in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Like he's so. Like, obviously people still go to see his films, and particularly internationally, he is a massive, massive star, yes. more so than in the United States, actually. And in India in particular, I think. And so well, he, he is like the last great movie star. Yeah. And so he he kind of just can do whatever in terms of what he's making, as long as it is of a like, certain level of quality, right? Which The Mummy wasn't, which is part of the problem with that movie. Like, that was clear. I did not see it. So maybe it was secretly a masterpiece that I, like, missed it out. Not. But even right. Even Tom Cruise fans were like, this ain't good. Right. Um, <laughs> and then he followed that up with this, which is the best movie he has made, it would seem, in quite a while. But his public persona, despite the fact that people still will go see his movies, is so 
negative, but not on the level of a, like, toxic sexual harasser, right? And I was thinking watching this, I was like, it is strange when someone through just working that hard kind of just wears you down as a viewer, right? And, like, it would be different if all kinds of, like, horrible sexual harassment stuff came out about him, right? Like, of course, there are levels of behavior. But he is affiliated with these, like, extremely horrible people. And all this, I mean, we don't know what went on with Nicole Kidman, but it was clearly very bad. And yet, like, you watch him in this, as I said at the beginning, and it's just, he has put in so much to this movie that you kind of are just like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy this because like, it's so, there's, it's just fine, fine, you win. Like, that was kind of how I felt watching it. Not that I like, like Tom Cruise now, obviously, like he's a fucking maniac. But in terms of watching the film, I was just like, well, okay. And that is how he has continued to work. It's just by kind of wearing everyone down. I think. By and also being good to like work force. with. Although there was this really, there was this like listicle, I think it was on Vulture, we'll link to it in the show notes, but it was like a listicle that was like, oh, here's all these great things that Tom Cruise has done on a personal level. And it was all sourced from like anecdotes from other actors. Um, and it was like, they were like, the kind of literally the, the entry paragraph was like, we know that Tom Cruise is tremendously alarming because of his affiliation <laughs> to Scientology. And also here's this list of like legit stories. So it was like, it was all stuff like, you know, every year he sends Dakota Fanning a birthday cake because they starred together in War of the Worlds or whatever. Or like, you know, he taught Zac Efron to drive his motorcycle. And like every single one of the stories, I was like, A, I believe this. B, Tom Cruise has emphatically done a cool thing in this story. And C, all of them seem like slightly weird to me because <laughs> like, it's like they're just like his intensity really shines over and it's like it's not so much that it's like oh he's compellingly charismatic it's more like his aura of power is overshadowing the fact that like even when you're doing something cool and nice for someone or being really professional in the workplace it's like still overshadowed slightly yeah well it's interesting i remember reading something on um the gossip website, Lanny Gossip, which I enjoy, a couple of years ago about him, where she basically was like, you know, people on red carpets tend to be pretty abrupt, which totally makes sense. Like, I would never blame an actor for that. Those things must be very unpleasant. But obviously then for the journalists, it's kind of tedious because you're dealing with these people who also are sort of just like, God, this is a nightmare, and like answer your questions very quickly and then move on. It's sort of just not great for anybody in that situation. And she was like, Tom Cruise is always the absolute nicest person in those situations. Like, he will stand there and talk to you and, like, be so polite and, like, remember you and on and on and on. And I was like, this is just actually weird. <laughs> like, well, it's nice, like, but he's it's He's the like, world's most what? obsessive person and, like, yeah. obsessively hardworking. And his entire life is being about, like, the world's most professional person. Yeah. Scientology is a self-improvement cult. Mm-hmm. That is how they get you. Yeah. And he has worked hard at that also. Like, oh. It's just... He, he's just... 
He's a fascinating man in a morbid way. And is, yeah, fascinating in this movie. One of the interesting things that you commented on was his total sexlessness in this yes. film also, which is interesting because a number of those films in the 90s and late 80s... Yeah, he did do, like, some sexy movies. Like, this is, like, the big American action franchise that is, like, a brand, right? Like, mm-hmm. beyond Jason Bourne. So it kind of sometimes gets put opposite Bond. And, like, the difference isn't, oh, yeah, there's, like, this big cultural clash because like the Bond films are like barely even that British anymore or ever were but like Bond has all of these vices that's kind of the whole point of James Bond is he has loads of vices and also he's like a really horny character that's like the quintessential Bond character whereas Ethan Hunt he doesn't seem like he ever is like actually sexually attracted to anyone he clearly has like this real emotional tie to his ex-wife who I actually find almost visually indistinguishable from his girlfriend in this movie, but like that's another story. Uh, but like, he's not like a sexual character, and also you can kind of say the same thing of most of his recent movies. Yes, Kendra James, who writes, I think mostly for Shondaland now, but she's like basically a Tom Cruise expert. She is like the world's biggest Tom Cruise fan from a critical perspective. But she like had published this article, which is basically about how he is this really sexless figure now as a movie star and how kind of unusual that is considering the fact that he was originally sort of like a pin-up, like handsome poster boy. And now he really is very, like there's none of that. And it's also like written into his characterization. And also at the same time, in the movies where he has loads of creative control like this, the female leads are not sexualized either. Yeah. Which is pretty unusual. Yes. I mean, if you look back at those big movies, right, like Top Gun is famously homoerotic. I haven't seen it, but like yeah. that's the meme It about is. It. I have seen it. And it's, all, it's yeah. not only homoerotic, but also like the, the relationship he has with the girl who everyone forgets even exists in that movie. It's like they have a sex scene and it yeah. is meant to be like a sexy, youthful relationship, yeah. which it's not because like it's really gay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. Um, and then Jerry Maguire's romantic comedy. Eyes Wide Shut is like a weird sex movie. And in Magnolia, he's playing this like weird, almost like sex cult guy. And he doesn't have any scenes with women except for the like interview with this journalist that I mentioned. And that's not a sexy scene at all. But he certainly has like a weird charisma in that movie because you have to believe that he like can do the job that he's doing, right? That is so different from his performances now that it's really like, I can't think of any other actor who's had a shift like that in any sort of personality way. It's really odd. The thing that I kept thinking about with this was that he's sort of like the archetype of the sort of chivalric knight. Yeah. Right. There's plenty of action heroes who are not like explicitly sexy. Like they don't have a love interest or like, it's just not present on screen but they don't have, like, the same vibe he has in this movie, Mm -hmm. which is that, like, when he is interacting with women that are his love interest, you're just like, these people have never experienced a genital connection. Yes! That's not (laughs) something that has occurred. He is canonically a virgin in this franchise. (laughs) And someone on Twitter did point out to me that there is some scene where he, like, has sex with Michelle McMonaghan or something, or, like, makes out with her in a cupboard. And I've not seen that movie, but I am here to confirm that that was definitely someone else wearing, like, one of those special mask things. He has not. He has not done that in these in these movies. 
Well, and the one thing that this movie does that is like perhaps resembles an idea <laughs> is that Henry Cavill plays the bad guy in a truly delightful performance. I have never enjoyed Henry Cavill in any film. And I don't this think is this is definitely the most I've enjoyed him. Like I don't I didn't I'm like I'm sorry guys, but I did not really like the man from Uncle and I thought that he was extremely wooden in it. I still don't think that he is a very good actor. Oh, but no. the one thing that I think he's good at is being amusingly angry while physically being very large. Um, and and, he, and I that's think what like the problem with, the problem with Superman film. is that he can't be angry. He shouldn't be. And in this, he should be angry and therefore it works. Yeah. I don't think this is like a supremely accomplished technical performance. But basically what he has to do is, as you say, like, look annoyed, be large do action stuff, which he can do, and uh, be attractive. And he accomplishes all of those things in a very entertaining way. And unlike Tom Cruise, he has, like, a sexual energy, and not that he is, like, deploying it in a massive way, but it certainly exists. And, like, the difference between them and then watching them interact together in scenes was... I found I found that quite interesting and entertaining because Tom Cruise slash Ethan Hunt is like operating in this completely opposite plane. And then <laughs> Henry Cavill is over here just like doing his thing. And I was like, wow, there's just a lot happening here. <laughs> like, oh my, okay. Oh, it was really amusing. And you could sort of tell that the Henry Cavill character, whose name I've forgotten and possibly never knew, is fucking with him. And it sort of reads like that's what's happening, like, in the movie and out of the movie also. And the whole thing is just really amusing. Like, I just enjoyed it immensely. There, I think you, and then also... Friend of the podcast, John Levitt, compared his whole aesthetic to uh, Tom of Finland, which it's absolutely full Tom of Finland. Yes, uh, you can. People can Google that if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, and that's true. That's just the correct comparison to make, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. There's a one shot where he's sort of like in the helicopter, glowering ahead of him, where Tom Cruise is coming up from behind him in another helicopter, and he doesn't realize that that's happening. And I was like, "This is just so good." <laughs> a plus. Good job to both of you. <laughs> oh my god! And the mustache. We must. We must mention the mustache. I mean, it like, adds so much to this guy who otherwise very much does look like he has been drawn as an outline in a practice comic book art drawing book. The moustache really makes it. Yeah, I. there are a few men who I think look better with a moustache, and I think Henry Cavill is one of them. And I now think that we can say definitively that it was worth him having the moustache CGI'd out in Justice League. I mean, it was definitely always worth that. If there was no reason to do it, it was still <laughs> worth it. Because, like, that film was very bad. And the fact that this made it bad in a funny and, like, bizarre way definitely just added to the whole experience. Yes. Oh, my God. 
And it turns out Chris McQuarrie, the director, was willing to, like, he made some arrangement with Warner Brothers to be like, we'll pause filming for a while, we'll let him shave, you can have him, and then you can give us some money to, like, CGI the moustache into our film instead. Um, and then his studio stepped in and were like, no. So it's all just like this petty studio rivalry between Paramount <laughs> and Warner Brothers rather than any of the individual filmmakers. And that's very amusing for everyone apart from uh, apart from Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon. But like, fuck him. I, I feel exactly the same way. Fuck those people. And we got the real mustache, which as we have just experienced with uh, Ewan McGregor's fake beard in... Oh god. Uh, yeah, that is by far. It's just oh god, the attack of the clone's beard. Right. If you can have the real facial hair whenever possible, that really is preferable. <laughs> so it all worked out in the end. Um, I would highly recommend this film. Go to it in a movie theater because it is going to be a much better experience on a big screen than on a small screen. It's going to lose a lot of its power on your computer I would say and it was really just it was a joyous experience to watch I, I think my favourite moment was when Tom Cruise belly flopped into the invisible pond because <laughs> there's literally no way to ever predict that <laughs> oh the skydiving scene was great too. There's a skydiving scene at the beginning that is completely plot unne- unnecessary for the plot. There's no reason why they would ever do it. It makes no sense, but it's so much fun. And clearly Tom Cruise was just like, I would like to skydive in this movie. Yeah, so I, th- I think in Mission Impossible, great. the concept of skydiving is basically the same as like renting a city bike. Like that is <laughs> how Ethan Hunt views that method of <laughs> transportation. Yeah, it's fine. It's all good. Uh... Yeah, just, it's great. Great summer entertainment. Superb. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you want to just watch people run around and punch each other. It's good stuff. Um, Next week, we will be returning to the Star Wars franchise for our third and final viewing session of the prequel trilogy. The qualitative best film in the prequel trilogy. <laughs> the second one, I'm pretty certain, is by far the worst. We had a terrible time. Please listen to our first two podcasts on that and then rejoin us. Um, also, we have like a really cool episode coming up on August 27th. If you've not kind of seen it already, we are going to be talking about Terry Pratchett's book Nightwatch, um, which is my favourite Discworld novel, was selected by our Patreon followers for a book club episode. Um, people on Patreon will get like a bunch of extra content and like kind of discussion posts and stuff. But on social media, especially Twitter, we are talking about the book um, on the hashtag Nightwatch podcast. It is really great. It's about kind of urban revolution. It's a political satire. It's really funny and entertaining and it's an easy read. And you can basically just drop in without having read any of the other Discworld books. Although if you want like a little summary, um, let me know and I can kind of give you some background info, which I gave to Morgan. But we are now reading that and the actual episode is on August 27th. So go to your local library and find Nightwatch by Terry Pratchett and have your mind blown by genius. Yes, I'm excited to start reading tomorrow on the train. So thank you for listening, as always. If you want Nightwatch content or our commentary tracks for the Star Wars movies or any other 
exciting extra goodies, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Otherwise, you can find us on our website at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.